Welcome back to Throwing Hands, uh, taking the lead on this one a little bit, a little bit of a change of pace. I'm Daniel Woods. Uh, joined alongside me, as per usual, is Jacob Janoski. We've got a little bit of a, a special interview on deck for you guys. We've been throwing these out the last few weeks, and we are pleased to be joined today by UFC middleweight uh, Julian Marquez. Julian, how are you doing today? What's up, y'all? I'm good, golden, happy, thirsty. And obviously, you guys doing? To get ready. doing well, doing well. I'm good, man. Like, I'm excited for this interview. So, yeah. All right, Daniel. So, you're getting ready to fight here in a few weeks. Obviously, getting trained up for that. But let's take it back more to the beginning of your career. Uh, this is kind of a question we throw at everybody we have on the podcast. Uh, how did you get your start in MMA? Um, I was uh, taking Jack 3D. You remember that old pre- like pre workout drink? You know, I was sitting yeah. there in the weight room, just working out, looking up at the, the TV, and, like, Anderson Silva fights were on. And I was like, I don't know if you've ever taken Jack 3D, but it gets your, your, your blood pumping and your thoughts going, and you feel like you can crush the world. And I was like, man, I can fight. I'll knock that dude out. And then, you know, a uh, buddy of mine picked me up one day, told me we're going to practice. I said, okay, the gym's looking for wrestlers. Let's go here. I said, okay, and then just kind of like walked into the Kids to Leaders, which has now evolved into Glory MMA and Fitness, and, I mean, the rest is history. So I'm just curious about your nickname. How did you get the nickname the Cuban Missile Crisis? The Cuban Missile Crisis was dubbed upon me at my amateur fight. I was fighting a kid named Danny Click. It was for the number one spot in Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah, he was undefeated. I think he was like 10-0, 11-0 at the time. Everybody kept talking that he was the, the person that was, uh, was that guy in Kansas City. And it took us a long time to fight. Well, when we finally get to the, you know, to the fight, uh, the ring announcer, I'm in back. I don't even know this. The whole time I'm warming up, the ring announcer asked a group of our friends, hey, uh what's his nickname everyone's like well I don't know what it is he's like no we got to give him a nickname he's gonna get a nickname today and uh they ended up uh one of my my good friend's wives ended up just saying it softly like the Cuban Missile Crisis and everybody's like yeah let's go with it so would you say your Cuban heritage has any effect on the way you fight uh I think for sure um, the Cuban heritage, it's the way I was raised. I was raised by uh, my family, my mom, my dad, but my grandparents uh, who were born in Cuba, uh, my dad was as well, but they, they raised me just exactly how they were raised, and they raised me with morals, standards, things like that. But uh, from over the years of seeing how they lived life, it was never quit, never give up, no matter how tough it was, no matter how hard it's going to be. So that type of mentality transferred over and it didn't matter what I was doing. If I was playing baseball, basketball, football, we wouldn't give up. We would just always go into it no matter how struggle the day was or how um, intense it was. We just keep going forward. 
So not long into your pro career, you got a, an opportunity with Bellator as your third pro fight. You ended up with a decision loss there. Uh, what kind of went into that fight, getting a fight at that level so early, in, so early in your career, and what were you able to take away from that? Oh, man, I, first off, I didn't lose that fight. Um, just because three judges end up telling you you lose a fight doesn't mean you lose it. Um, you know, everyone can sit there on paper. Yeah, you could go like that. But to me, you know, it was a success for myself and how I look at it because um, prior to that fight, I had nine fights back out. I showed up on the scale, weighed in multiple times. People didn't show up for the fight. Um, so it was very difficult for me to actually, like, get to a fight. I have a fight. And that whole year, your, your emotions are going up and down. You're working three jobs, four jobs at the time to try to keep bills up. Um, and pay for things while still attaining the gym classes and, and working out. Um, and you're supposed to have these fights and take a, you know, take a little deal, but everyone fell through. So we got a call to, to work at Bellator and I was like, yeah, for sure. I don't care the opponent at this point in time. Um, I went in there and after one year being off training and everything, I, I decided like, forget this. Like the easiest way to beat this person is to take him down. I don't want to go to the ground. Let's stand up with them. Let's practice stand up. Let's see. And in that fight, I found everything about myself. I found I got a chin. I found I got heart. And I found out that no one wants to really stand with me anymore. So after that, after that Bellator loss, you head back to the local circuit before you hit the Dana White Contender Series. What did you learn during those three straight wins before the Contender Series about yourself and what it led to in the Contender Series? I, uh, I actually, after that fight, I picked up myself and moved to Vegas. And, uh, started training out there, had those three fights, everything started going, my life started changing. I started realizing I had a lot more power in my hands. I was getting finishes and uh, just getting into the contender series. It was awesome. It was cool. It was a great opportunity, but it was no different than me fighting in Kansas city on the uh, KCFA at the time. So when you get to the contender series, what were your thoughts going into it? When you step in the octagon, what were you thinking? Just another fight, man. I'm, I'm here to win. I'm here to come out here and uh, just get my hand raised. Like I, didn't, I, 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 you can hear it multiple times inside the interview. I'm not there for, I wasn't there for the contract. I didn't give a shit about it. I didn't give a shit about impressing Dana White. That's not my job. My job's not to impress him. My job's to go out there and perform to my best capabilities. Had I not, it's not going to ruin my life. My knife wouldn't have been bad. But I went out there to make sure that I did what I can do and go out there and perform to my best abilities. There was no pressure on a contract. There was no pressure because you had three spectators on there. Nothing at all. Nothing changes. Your life is still the same. So you go out there against Phil Hawes. It turned into a pretty exciting fight. And then you get almost exactly midway through the second round. And you have a little bit of a scramble up against the cage. You guys break. And then you just flatten him with that head kick for a knockout a really impressive knockout there uh in terms of what went on during that fight that helped set that that finish up what were you seeing as that went on well um i would like to think that is the greatest knockout in dana white contender series history I've never seen a body fall like the way it did plus that was just a vicious vicious setup but if you look literally one minute prior to that kick we were in the same position when he was on the ground he got up and he did the same thing got up with his hands low and he looked back. So I realized when I was in the position against the cage, landing elbows, he wanted a way out. He wanted to stand up. He wanted to run away. 
So I gave it to him, and then I set him up for that kick. So you win your contract. You impress in a way. He's out of his seat. I'm sure that made you feel pretty good. What was going through your head when you wrote that signature on the dotted line? Um, yeah, when I got that contract, I was so worried I was going to be in the hospital. I felt like my lungs were bleeding, dude. Like, I do not – I cannot explain to you what I was – what happened in that fight. Something happened with my lungs, but I couldn't breathe. And I wasn't even – I wasn't even excited, dude. I was like – I thought I was dying, bro. But I don't know what it is. Like, my lungs, it was just tough to breathe. Everything I was doing, I sounded like Gonzo from Sesame Street. If you ever listen to my interviews, it was just like the whole time I was talking like this. And I don't know what it what was going on. So I signed a contract that was cool and all. But, like, I was more worried about my health at that point in time and my lungs. So you make your UFC roster uh, official debut, UFC on Fox 26. Uh, back in 2017, you get a submission win over Darren Stewart. Uh, before that fight, you walk into the octagon in front of a, a full UFC crowd uh, on a TV card really for the first time. What was it like in that moment, stepping into the octagon, hearing your name called, and just being able to take that moment in? I was dancing. If you don't recall, man, I dance, I party, I have fun, I enjoy it. I love the fans, I love the people, I love the atmosphere that's presented with the fans. And I'm also cool with them not being there. But it was, uh, it was just fun, man. That, that's why I do this. It's the fun. I'm having a blast when I walk out there. And in Winnipeg, man, those fans are just another level. The, the atmosphere, the, the intense feeling of these people cheering. Just to, They don't even know who you are, but they're cheering because they know this is about to be a scrap. And uh, it's just fun for me. Yeah, so you you mentioned like the scrap. What what uh what's your? I assume that's your favorite type of fight. And what does a crowd have an influence on you? What type of influence does it have on you? Uh, when I say a scrap is when I, I mean I don't like scraps. I don't like to sit there and and throw down and and brawl. But like scrapping, whenever you have a good fight, a solid fight going back and forth, you all know the ones that you sit there and your close calls. Most of these title fights that you see nowadays are scrapping. These guys are going at it. They're too close to call. That's a fight I like. And uh, that's the fights that I like to put on. I, I hope not to keep on getting scraps. I hope to finish people until I get to the point of a title and we can scrap from there. But the crowd, the energy the crowd gives is humongous. The energy that crowd does when they boo you, you feel like you got to do more. When they cheer you, you want to do more. And it's just – you can play off the crowd a lot, um, but a lot of people, when we're focused, hyper-focused in that, we don't focus on the crowd or the, the noise they make. You know, we, we block them out. You don't really hear them. All you do is hear your coaches. So you're getting ready to, ready to fight here at the end of August, and it's, it's been a big layoff for you. Uh, going back to your last fight, July of 2018, uh, complete tear of the latissimus dorsi muscle. And I was reading you, you worked with a doctor out of Chicago uh, who's, who's worked with a lot of baseball players, had never seen the injury quite like this, uh, the way that it was for you. Um, just take us a little bit through the rehab process. Obviously, you, you're such a motivated guy. Uh, you, you said you're willing to fight anybody, middleweight, light, heavy, uh, heavyweight. What was the rehab process? What was your mentality going into that? The rehab process was hell. 
It was absolutely horrible. It sucked. Every day you'd wake up in pain. Every day someone's putting you in pain. You spent an hour of your morning waking up and having to go through this process, whether it be the miracle wave, whether it be Gratson, whether it be dry needling, whether it be acupuncture, uh, someone's poking, prodding, ripping, pulling. It was absolutely horrible. And we did that for two years. All right. We did that for over, you know, 700 days worth of rehab has been done. And it's not fun. It's not good. Um, I hated it. Brought another surgery. Uh, the whole time I had to keep my, my mental up. Um, I found other avenues in my life to keep myself sane because you couldn't train. And if I did train, it would be one arm or running, things like that. But there's so many times you can do that in the week and uh, afford that as well. So I sat there and found different avenues. I started working with the USC, doing different things, um, you know, trying to build marketing plans, trying to build out promotion plans, trying to understand a little bit more of the business, trying to become a business savvy person. And, you know, that really helped me get through it and keep me inside the USC and keep me understanding of everything I need to go through. Because, I mean, what are you going to do when the doctor tells you they don't know when you're going to fight again? So, um, I'm pumped for this fight coming up now. So during that rehab time, did you ever doubt where your career was going to go? Absolutely not. Dang. All right. I like the confidence there. All right. So your next fight, two and a half, about 26 month layoff. What did you learn about yourself during that time? What have you improved on during that time in order to go up against this guy, Safarov? I mean, I, I mean, I learned a lot. It's very, two years is a long time. You, it's really not, but it really is at the same time. When you look back at it, like it, it feels like an attorney when you're in, an eternity when you're in it. But when you look back, it's different. Um, I feel like I still have a lot to give, and I still have a lot more. And the best part about it is that everybody's taking a lot of damage, and I was able to heal my whole body. Everything in my body is healing during that two years off, and you know. I worked on my weaknesses. I worked on my strengths. I did everything I could during this time to make me a better, you know, Julian Marquez. And August 29th, you'll see the best Julian Marquez you've seen in a long time. So with that improvement in your uh, conditioning and stuff like that, do you think you'll have a better weight cut this time compared to the last fight because you were five pounds overweight last time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so – uh, coming up, so what what do you see in Safarov that might have a little may, may give you a couple problems here and there, or what's what's your thoughts going into this one? Oh, dude, I don't even know. I haven't even looked up one video of him. Um, I I don't care where it goes. I'm ready. I'm evolved. Um, I saw him live when I was in T-Mobile at the beginning of the year before the pandemic hit, and I remember him going, and I saw that, and I was like, oh, I was very interested. Um, but I, I don't I don't watch any film. It doesn't matter where it goes. I'm prepared on every single aspect. Um, you know, I'm going out there to get the win. I'm going out to get the stoppage. I'm going out there to party. I'm going out there to have fun. With it seeming like uh, just the way you're talking, you're a lot more worried about fighting your style than, than changing your style to what the other guy wants you to do. What does the ideal Julian Marquez fight look like? You're going to see it. I can't tell you what it's going to be. It's been two years since I played, but uh, you know, I'm hearing I'm uh, I'm developed to be a true mixed martial artist and developed to be 
not just a, a one-sided person or a one-dimensional person. Um, so that's what's going to happen. It's going to come out as a mixed martial artist, Julian Marquez. And uh, it's the first of many to come. So you've, you're fighting at the apex. What, do you, what challenges or what advantages will be presented to you with a smaller octagon? I mean, that's all I've ever fought in a small octagon. Winnipeg is the only one that's big. But every time we fight in an octagon, it, for some reason, I always get the small one. And maybe because they like the punching power and it brings more knockouts when you're in a smaller cage. But uh, there's no disadvantage on that for either one of us. But for me, I grew up in the small cage. All right, man. So one other question. So during this COVID-19 pandemic, you know, gyms are closed. What have you been doing to uh, fill up your time? Uh, like I said, I still do business stuff on the side, whether it's research on housings, whether it's um, sitting there marketing and putting stuff together, uh, plans, proposals, different things like that to push myself and do better. Um, I have a lot of deals coming up with a lot of companies that we'll be seeing here soon after this next fight. Um, I started a podcast. I started talking. I mean, I, there's so much stuff. Um, the thing is, is this pandemic is either going to make you or break you. And a lot of people, they use the pandemic as an excuse, but it was the greatest thing to ever happen to me. Not the situation of what's going on, but the pandemic is the greatest thing in the world. Like I, I'm coming out of this pandemic with a fight with a better arm, a better body, better soul, better mind, um, and more income. Uh, you know, I, I built stuff on the outside and business world that is actually pushing out and it's, it's showing and people are going to start to notice that I didn't just sit on my butt and wish that the days were going by. I went out to the park to go work or we opened up gyms to go work out in. You mentioned your, your podcast there. And I think for a lot of people who are seeing you for the first time, that's probably not something they they know about you or know about your career. Talk about uh, what you're doing with that a little bit. Man, I just have a fun time on a podcast talking with a porn star, and we just sit there and talk about sex, betting, and fights. What more things can you want? What's the podcast called? It's called uh, Beauty and the Beast Podcast. Okay. All right, Beauty and the Beast Podcast. I'll take a listen, man. I'm yeah, curious. If you want to learn how to slide in the DMs to some, you know, attractive females or males, that's her job to teach you how to do that one. I don't do that one but uh no no judging i just don't know how uh but anyways uh yeah you listen to that listen to some stories of hers and you know some pretty pretty interesting things that go on in that on that topic well definitely we'll have to check that out uh we want to julian we want to thank you for for coming on the podcast with us taking a little bit of time out of your day uh to just talk to us just about your career and everything that's that's gone on we really appreciate it Oh, yeah, for sure, man. Thank you guys for having me. This is awesome. I hey, love, where, love doing this. Where can people find you on social media? Social media, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. It's going to be J Marquez MMA, as well as TikTok is J Marquez MMA 185. I do not have any TikTok dances on there, but if you have recommendations, please send them my way and we can do them together. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thank you once again for coming on. And uh, again, that's Julian Marquez, UFC middleweight. Find him, as he said, Instagram and Twitter, J, J Marquez MMA. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. And that will do it for this episode of Throwing Hands. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you another time.